1: unconventional soldier a military podcast brought to you by two british army veterans in association with isar.com com. like one of my claims to fame was i took um, alex jones off the telly up that for, for sports relief and we raised like you know, like 5 million you claim a this big thing in america for like 5 days you never crap for 5 days that's probably the most it's very impressive um yeah alex jones <laughs> so, but you um I never, I never, we've got 500 million, we've got 5 million quid, I never saw, never saw a penny of it, terrible. But you, um when you hang around all these like celebrities and TV people and that, that kind of stuff, you realise they actually live a really toxic life because they're always on edge because they always know that their their fame and everything else and their fortune is so fleeting. I remember like, you're on the side of this climb, like day three and Alex Jones is like, Oh, you'd be really good on a panel show. I'm like, fuck, like bloody hell, like, is that is that all my life? Is that is that it? Is that is that all? You know, all I have to offer is to be on a panel show. And you often see people like when you know when you see someone on telly on a doing Family Fortunes or something. And i was always like, oh my god, that's like terrible. Like this person's been doing this for like twenty years. Like that's terrible. And my wife's like, what are you talking about? He gets pretty, gets paid loads of money, and he's you know. And I'm like, yeah, but that's just to me, that's just terrible. Like I've I've done I've done like guiding myself and you know, I was you know there's that, I do remember that saying like being poor takes up all your time and being rich <laughs> being rich takes up everybody else's in that you're you're often guiding someone who has like like enough money for ten lifetimes but they have no time you know they literally you will climb something and they'll be like straight on the straight on the plane first class back to London or whatever and they have they sacrifice so much in their lives. But what the, the 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 change in some people, like in the people who are running these companies, the people with lots of money. Where before they might buy, you know, you know, you know, you're hanging out with someone who's rich when they say, "How do you make a million pounds? Start with a billion and buy an airline." Like people don't, people don't do have jokes like that in Hull. I'm telling you, you know.
2: it's going to be a lot of apologies for Hull <laughs> this, this podcast.
1: Uh, John Prescott will be ringing me up, but where before people would be buying like. You know fancy cars and race horses and all that kind of stuff you know you'll go and speak to somebody who's running um it was a i had a job and it was for uh uh like intel or someone like that and you know and the guy's like oh I'm uh, I've just done the bob Graham you know like you know running all the the high peaks of uh and I've just done the marathon dess last year and and there's this sort of transition where certain people they're like actually anyone could buy a fancy car." But not many people can climb El Cap or, you know, like, row across the Atlantic. And in a way, like, a there is, like, an industry, like, for all those people who want to go trekking and climbing Everest and everything else, like, those, they might whinge about it. Like, you know, all the sherpas and all that kind of stuff might whinge, pretend to whinge about it. But when, have you ever see someone on the BBC saying, like, oh, these guys are going to go and pick up all the dead bodies and uh, pick up all the toilet rolls or something? you know they're just it's just a hustle basically you know like they have no other alternative they're just so and i think a lot of mountain guides are probably the same and uh you know it's like an in, it's like an industry it's probably the same you know we've got traveling to india or traveling to egypt you know like in the victorian times they were the richest people around and we're now you know i've met people who went to climb everest one guy was it from the isle of man and like the beegees had but paid given the money to climb Everest, then you you but you meet people and they really they're just ordinary people, but they have this ambition and they want to build their own boat and row across the Atlantic. Or I think the I think that transition because I I had that when I was a kid. I thought to go on an expedition, you had to be invited by Chris Bonington or or somebody. You know, you had to be. You know, it, it, it was it was a different thing. But really, it's just a holiday. You know, you just you just pay buy a ticket, pack your bag and off you go. If you want to go to Alaska, or Patagonia, or Himalayas, or or whatever, you just have to just turn up. You just have to buy the ticket, basically. And I think, in a way, that kind of democratization of, of these things is good. And a lot of people, like, people come to me, and they'll be like, how do you afford to do all these adventures? And I'm like, what do you do? And they're like, I'm a lawyer. You know, it's like, I make, you know, I make like eight grand a year, and I can afford it. Like, you know, it's not, that's not really a reason why you can't do it. You know, you'll see people who you know, do like a, you know amazing, amazing things. Maybe that's one reason why people join the military because they want that, there's no other outlet. They don't know how to get into outward bound stuff or sport. Like, you know, a lot of, you know, in the past people joined the military because they could get into like sport without being a professional footballer or whatever. Probably probably less, probably less though so now. Hey
0: Andy, I can tell you right now, mate, when I joined up when Kev joined up, All the brochures showed, loads of people out skiing, diving in the Caribbean and all the rest of it. How much of that did I do? It's a right old bluff, isn't it, kid?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, um, the few people that may do it wasn't us.
0: Just touched on something you said there earlier, Andy. So you said that soldiers often put themselves in danger because it's their job and a combination of training, discipline and fear and letting their mates down drives them forward. So what attracts and motivates you to extreme situations? Do you like danger? Uh, are you a, are you an adrenaline junkie?
1: No, no, definitely not. I I think of myself as quite a cowardly person. I always try and avoid uh, anything too dangerous. So I always, I always oh, really I was not-
0: told, sorry, but I think climbing <laughs> <laughs> El Capitan and Denali in the middle of winter I think would would cheat would you off on that, wouldn't it's it? It's
1: probably like you know, like a bomb disposal person. They probably don't they probably know it's dangerous what they're doing, but they don't actually think they're in danger because they think yeah. they can do it. But it, another analogy is like I've had like a, quite a few dealings with animals, with wild animals. Like with, a, got attacked by like a baboon. I got attacked by an an, an elephant, um, bear, like a bear and all this. Kind of. So I've had these kind of weird interactions with animals. And when an animal is coming to attack you, that is that's that's adrenaline. Like that's like real fear. That's like fight fight or flight kind of thing. But if I'm like if I'm like hunting the animal, that's something else. And that's and that's what I'm that's what mountaineering is to me is that kind of mastery craft skill you know experience of being able to do something dangerous like trying to kill an animal that could kill you but, but in without... one situation you're in control and the yeah. other you aren't the other one is like if you're in an avalanche then that is the that is the that's the uh, you know leopard on your back kind of thing that's you fighting to not drown fighting to fighting for your life not to get buried in the snow but when you're trying to avoid being in an avalanche that's you like understanding the, the slopes and everything else and knowing when to go back wanting to put a rope on and all this kind of stuff so it, like in like sometimes i'd wake up and I'd, I'd just have this like oh my god did i just did i did i really do that and i'd be thinking about you know falling off something or making a slight stupid mistake or something I'd, and the you know, it's, it's, there's, there's things you do which, looking back on, were, we're really, really dangerous. Uh, and there's some things out of your, you could say that. Well, it wasn't my fault, like, but you know, you were there in the, you know, you were standing there. You were, st- you're in that, you were in that place. You know, it's like um, you were asking for trouble by going to do that. I have, I have been very, very lucky uh, as a, as a climber, really. But, but I guess I, because I am actually very cautious. Like I have a reputation for being like a very dangerous person and doing dangerous stuff. When people climb with me, they're always like, actually, you're, you're very... They feel safe, you know, in that dangerous situation. So,
2: well, Andy, um, we've we talked on previous parts in our series about how soldiers are selected for specialist roles, the sort of courses, the, the aptitude, you know, mental and physical. Obviously, this isn't the luxury that you have in the climb world, especially when you're going on an expedition with uh, maybe a climbing partner you don't know very well or you've never worked with before. So... What are the attributes that you look for in your team, and what are they looking for in you?
1: I, I, uh, <laughs> you this has to be breathing, basically. <laughs> just, oh, fair play! Just, 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 turn up. Like I, I, I once, I was once staying in, y- in Yosemite, and there was these two la- two young lads, and I, one of them, like they had basically very little experience, and one of them, was, one in the evening, was like, "Do you want to go and climb El Cap tomorrow?" And they're like, "What? What?" I'm like. Yeah, like we'll just go and climb this route on El Cap, and we'll just do it in a day. And they were like, they're like, oh, we yeah, we don't have any, Like, we, don't worry, don't worry. I'll I'll do all I'll do all the climbing. I'll keep the rope tight. It'll be totally safe. You can trust me. Uh, but we have to get up at like four in the morning. So we're like, all right then, okay, we'll we'll do it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it anyway. Four in the morning comes round. There's only one of them. I'm like, where's the other guy? He said, oh, he doesn't want to come. He's like, he wanted to have a lion or something, you know. <laughs> so we go off and we climb we climb El Cap. And uh, we get to the top, and we we come down. And I remember as we're walking back towards the car, the guy was like, "I'm sorry, I'm just gonna have to, I'm just gonna have to run off." I'm like, "Why?" He's so like, "I'm just like so happy," and he just like rat, just ran off down the road. And you know, for him, that was probably at that moment in his life, that was probably one of the most amazing things he ever did in his life. And that other guy, he just got a lion so
0: yeah and he'll go back and tell that guy and that guy will be kicking himself so the rest of his life I, why
1: did i do it but um but it is often those people who just show that like do you want to go and sleep in a snow hole do you just go outside and dig a snow hole like why why do you want to do that like there's a bed here you sleep in a nice warm house another someone would be like oh yeah that sounds great let's go and dig a snow hole or you know let's go for a swim in the sea or let's you know let's go out in the rain or something and it's that it's those people who would just have that set and it's, it's I expect it's like 20% of people. Do you have an instinct with people?
0: Oh, can you, When you meet somebody and you're involved in a climb, or, uh, do, you, do you ever get a bad vibe about somebody on a climb? You, you're maybe just sitting off on the first pitch and you think, I don't trust this person. Do you ever get that? Uh,
1: there, I, <laughs> I, I climbed with someone recently. I did a route in Ireland. was like the, one of the longest routes in Ireland. And it's literally like I was sitting outside the coffee shop and he, and he was walking in, he's like, are you Andy Patrick?" I'm like, yeah. So I saw this film on, like, a plane of you, like this film, I mean, the psycho Vertical film. And uh, so I started talking to him. I'm like, do you want to go, do you want to go climbing? He's like, oh, that sounds, that sounds great. So, we, so we, we, we rock up at this cliff, like, a few weeks later. And when he gets to the bottom, he says, like, I've got two belay, de, belay devices, which you, you know, put the rope through and you hold the rope. He lifted them up and one was a pulley which isn't a belay device, it's, for, it's a pulley. And the other one was a belay device. I was like, that's a, that's a, that's a sign that this guy has no idea <laughs> about climbing. And I was like, well, we just, walked all, we just walked all the way up here. We'll just carry on. So we carried on. And then I was like, you know, like he was you put like some protection in the rock and you get up to it you had no idea how to get it out and you'd be pulling on it. And you just but you just realize that, A, I better not fall off because you probably can't belay me. He's probably just going to let go of the rope or something but I'm probably not going to fall off and, uh, he's safe. You know, even if I die, he's going to be safe. And, and he just kind of, uh, you know, it's not textbook, but we got to the top. You know, we, we ended up getting the top at like eight o'clock at night and, you know, and it was just, uh, it was a great, a great day out with this guy. And he, and he next, you know, and after that, I met someone who said, Oh, that guy, he's been going on a climbing course and he wants to, you know, it was like a fantastic experience, but then you, like I've, it's often, it's often like spotting the little tiny things. You know, the classic thing was, you know, someone said, you know, you, you're, you're walking along to the beginning of this climb and you get to a stye. And the other guy's like, shall I put the, shall I, I get the rope out? Or you know. <laughs> oh, like when I went to Antarctica with these people, um, like Norwegians have this thing called uh, pulsa, which is like bones that are boiled. Like uh, they have them for Christmas, Christmas meal. It's like, lamb bones so you boil them and they're smoked and you eat them they're disgusting their job in in cape town was to these two people was to boil these bones up so we could uh we could take them to antarctica and eat them on christmas day and anyway they let the they let the, the they boiled it dry the, the the pan boiled dry and they all got burnt so in my mind i was like that is a that was a red mark against these two people because all they had to do was boil some bones and they managed to fuck it up basically so <laughs> so i think um it's those little tiny things that people say or do. You know, you much, much better to have someone who doesn't say anything rather than yeah. someone who says everything. I'm probably the person who says everything. But no, it's, it's interesting. That all, you know, those, these Norwegians, they'd always say, like, you know, Norwegian special forces, they basically, you know, like go in a snow hole somewhere and they'll, they'll be there for like a month and they'll be like crapping into those, um, you know, those uh, insulated food containers so that the, the Russians can't see the, the heat from the crap and all that kind of stuff. So, so that when they're trying to find someone to be climbing with, it's basically could I spend a month in a snow hole with this person, not like how good are they at firing a gun or you know, or sort of qualification. So it's and it's, it's the same with climbing. I think is you can tend it with people who are incredibly random, r- random individuals, but you just think, well, this someone I climbed with, he skied the, he was the first person to ski down Everest. He skied down the north face of Everest, and at one point, his skiing partner. Uh, they set up an anchor to abseil over a small cliff right near the top of the face, two thousand meter face, and the anchor failed, and he fell, and he fell, fell all the way to the bottom of the face and was killed. And this guy, Tormod he had to then create his own anchor and abseil down and ski all the way down this face past patches of blood and stuff from his from his partner. And I remember thinking, like, anyone that could do that, anyone who doesn't just sit down there and just just pack in and just can't, I can't do it. Is someone that doesn't matter if he doesn't have any experience. That's not important. He can learn all that stuff. This person is someone who's incredibly strong, and uh, and we end up climbing the troll wall together. And uh, you know, he had, he, he had no experience, but he, he never he never wanted to go back down. And he was, you know, it was like a solid a solid person. So, but, but I think most people are. If you make them aware that they are able and can and they can do it, like I don't know in the military, how many people sort of fold? You know, how many people go. I can't do it, you know. Like you know, it's 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 very rare, isn't it, to hear to hear that happening.
0: But I think um, in the military, I mean, I mean, compared to climbing, you know, if you're halfway up the Troll Wall or halfway up El Capitan, as you say, your options are very very limited. For I think if you're getting beasted in the army, if you want to fall to the side of a road somewhere or stop going up, you know, the Penny Fan, the options there. But I think that, I think that's one of the major differences between what we're talking about here in both these worlds, the army and climbing. So often in climbing, there's no return for you.
1: Yeah, you have to kind of hold it together maybe a, a bit longer.
0: <laughs> so, Andy, you're talking there about Antarctica, and um, I remember reading in 2014 you made the first ascent of the West Ridge of. – I'll probably get the name wrong now – is it Alvatana? Yeah, yeah. Regarded by many as one of the hardest mountains in the world, and during this period you spent 14 days in extreme conditions as cold as minus 50 – and I've had to put this question in, but I think I already know the answer. So <laughs> I've put my little notes here. Survival of these extremes must require the same kinds of fieldcraft craft in the military. And how did you prepare for that? But I think you're going to tell me that you didn't bother. You just cracked on. <laughs> <Dylan. laughs>
1: uh, well, uh, um, yeah, I remember when I, when I went on that trip, you had to have a, because you're going to Antarctica, you have a medical, because you have to prove that you're not going to have a heart attack or something because there's no rescue there. Like some scientists might turn up, but remember that I had this this um this medical, and the guy with the doctor was like i'm afraid you're a you're obese you're technically obese that like you're so fat I was like that's great, that's great, that's perfect because like someone someone told me that if you're going to go on a big trip, if you go there super super fit like you know six pack can you know, do like hundreds of press ups that you just won't be able to last like your body will just start breaking breaking down so that's often the best preparation is to again you have this like inner strength, this builder. Build a bin man fitness strength. You are. You have this kind of, these reserves. Uh, like I once I once skied across Greenland and that was a trip where everyone started off very fit. But I was so fat that I couldn't even zip my coat up. myself. <laughs> we went to Iceland and it was raining. I couldn't zip my coat. My stomach was too big. But after, you know, 500 kilometers of, of skiing, like I'd never skied before either. Like I never told them. I'd never actually put on Nordic skis. Like I didn't, I'd never actually been skiing at all. But when we arrived on the helicopter on the glacier on the ice cap, I was like, "How do you put the how do you put the skis on?" And this guy was like, a "Friend of mine, he's like no, a Finnish special forces guy." He was like, "Ah, oh, you're so funny. I'm glad you came." I'm like, "Yeah, but <laughs> how how do how do you put them on?" And I had actually tried to put them on once, uh, but I couldn't work out how to put them on. So anyway, so put them on, and for a joke, I'd walking around with them. You're know, like snowshoes. Like, oh, this is this is easy. And I wasn't very good at skiing to begin with, but you know five. 500 kilometers into it, I was pretty I was pretty good at it. And um like that's not very re- recommended. Mm-hmm. But also towards the end, I was like super, super fit and like lost, lost all the weight. Well, I'd say the other people who started super fit, towards the end, they were really like falling apart, like physically falling apart. You're not doing like a, you know, like a hundred meter sprint in the Olympics. You're basically making yourself as you're trying to have the greatest survivability. In that environment, minus you know minus thirty, would be the worst of it. But a lot of the time, it's actually very hot in Greenland. So, like, I was always more obsessed about covering my skin, so I didn't want to get really bad sunburns, which would then get infected. You know, so other people had like really deep burns on their skin. You know, so it wasn't there wasn't there a fitness? It was that they just got zapped by the sun. agitated. And,
0: yeah, yeah, their
1: lip their lips got you know if your lips get super burned, it's not it's not game over, but you're going to suffer so badly for a long time every time you smile or anything you, it's going to you know like people getting like, like people getting hemorrhoids You know, it's the hemorrhoids that kill you not the not the polar bears oh, I've, had, I've
0: had my first share of hemorrhoids andy <laughs> not, not not a lot of fun and I I,
1: genetic i think
0: <laughs> i remember reading an account in the falklands saying that uh, when they went down south to the falklands a lot of super fit racing snakes didn't last the pace for the reasons that you just stated there
1: like when you when you read the accounts of the falklands where they were they were moving up and all their and they were supposed to bring up all their bags and sleeping bags but they would never arrive so they'd be there for you know one or two nights with no bivvy gear at all just and it's just like god how tough were those guys they had cotton clothes woolly jumpers you know some very rudimentary winter gear and they could just do it and they could just then and then, and it's not just the doing it for one night it's the ability to then carry on you know and carry on and carry on and fight and I just don't, I just, it'd be it'd be interesting to see if you could recreate that, you know, that situation now, if soldiers could do it without all their amazing, you know, gear, Gore-Tex and, you know, I think, I think in the, like, I often look at the Falklands because it's, because I'm, in, I'm interested in equipment and survival, uh, you know, the Falklands is, is a very, it's right on the, the, the edge of where people started having, like, Gore-Tex and Special Forces had quite good gear there, but everybody else had, like, Terrible, you know. Terrible. Yeah, people. that
0: that was uh, when we talked to Jimmy. I don't know if you listened to the podcast Jimmy did with yeah. us. The two partner films. The kit back then was very, very basic, and and those guys were tough individuals to get
1: through what they did. And none of them, none of them would have. Yeah, like, some of them might have had some kind of experience in Northern Ireland, but no, nothing like fighting in an actual war with guys with machine guns and fifty caliber. So again, it's that thing about they just kind of rocked up there. And somehow they, they kind of <laughs> pull it off, you know. Like maybe if a second a second or third warm well, they might want to do it because they'd be like, oh, God, I just I just got through that first one. It was so grim. I dare I again. say
0: it, mate, it's probably the same as going back to what I was saying about climbers. If when you're halfway up El Capitan, you can't go back down. I suppose when you're in the Falklands and you're, you're halfway to Mount Longdon, there's no turning back, is there? Well, there yeah. was
2: there was no turning back, was there? There was nowhere for them to go once they got yeah. down there. You know, the only place to go was get back on a ship and sail back to the UK. So, you, you were stuck. You're going to get on with it. And, and, yeah. I, and I do think if you took soldiers today, give them the basic kit, once they go over that mental change, that like we just said, physically we can do a lot more. It's the mental piece. We just got to do that quick adjustment. But once we do that adjustment, and I mean the, the military still do adventure training and stuff, I think I think the military
1: today could still do it. I think when you see soldiers dying of like um, hypothermia or heat, ex- heat exhaustion, people will be like, "Oh, how can we let this happen? We must change the training or whatever." But you're, yeah, it's the it's the real deal, isn't it? It's like training people to be gladiators and saying they got like this guy got his finger cut off. We need to use less sharp swords or something. Like it's yeah. the nature it's the nature of the game that it's a dangerous like killing people. Yeah. You know, it's a dangerous business. You know, it's uh and i think we we are so insulated from it like you know when you like i spent you know like 5 months in africa it's it's a, it's a different completely different mindset about safety and you know i think we're in kenya they have like 5000 deaths a year on the roads you know you're just driving around it's just and, and no one drives at night so basically all those deaths are basically in like a you know a 12 hour period or something and uh you know so their idea of of risk and danger is is completely it's completely different. You well, know. it's all
0: relative, isn't it? You know, and, and it's the same on ops for soldiers. It boils down to basics, keeping yourself and your blokes alive. And you've already talked about it when you're on these expeditions, eating and sleeping and returning to normal world with all its trivialities can be difficult. And I imagine that's not too different from climbing extreme conditions. So do you, do you have that thing, Andy, where you, you go away, you do some of these extreme climbs, and then you come back to sort of the mundane realities of everyday life and do you find do you that difficult
1: to cope with? I guess it's like that whole, you know, the end of Hurt Locker, you know, where he's walking down the supermarket. Is it's, uh, it's, it's It can be like very jarring. You have that initial return to the real world. And it's like so so nice and you have a shower and you, you know, you, you sleep in a bed. You go down to the pub and you can get a drink and get a bag and all that kind of stuff. But very quickly, you know, within a matter of hours, it's, I need to get out of here. I need to, I need to, I need to do some, I need to do something else. Like this is, uh, you know, like when you, when you come home, you know, you've soloed El Cap and you've been up, up there for 11 days all by yourself and that, you know, life, life transforming experience. You come home and your neighbor's complaining that you have put bin rubbish in their wheelie bin. You know, this thing about cultivating your own garden, like you, you have to eventually learn. You have to adapt to your your the real world, so there's some kind of there's less of a gap between the two you know if you really cannot survive by going from Basra you know Basra back to manchester you you probably need to go and live somewhere else, like go and live on a man you know go and get a job in a man or somewhere or you know when you when you're somewhere when you're somewhere different uh you know so i lived in I lived in Kuwait for a while i had no I had no edge to go on on any dangerous expeditions or anything. Because I was like going to QA, like traveling. I went to Saudi Arabia and Oman and all these kind of places, and it was just just being there, just going to McDonald's in in um, in uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, all the all the cubicles have got kittens on them and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, that's cool, that's different. And you're 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 feeding something's being fed just by the difference of where you are and the culture and not knowing what people are going to be like or dealing with people and dealing finding new places uh being off the map in a way. Psychologically you're off the map if you're in Saudi Arabia. So I think I think uh maybe that maybe it's not the it's not the real world. It's not the transition. It's just that uh you need to maybe change your life. Maybe you're like running away from your real life. Like I call it locked in life syndrome is where you have this life where you're you're married, you've got this boring life, you know you don't really love your wife she doesn't love you you got this job you don't really like you know you're just not you're just not very happy but you but it's not so bad that you have to really do anything and what you do is you think like what well, i'm going to do i'm going to you know i'm going to I'm going to buy a motorbike instead i'm going to just you know so you're always like trying to escape from this life that you're not really happy with to do all the extreme stuff i'm going to get into base jumping i'm going to get into something else and i think that's very very common with most people you're in there. You know, your eyes are moving, that's all that can move. Making that transition to saying, look, you know, we don't live, they don't love each other, but maybe it's not to do with those. Maybe it's to do with the situation you're in. Why don't we just like sell everything? I'm just going, we'll just do something else. And if it doesn't work out, what does it matter? You know, we'll just sell the house. What does it matter? And they'll, and they'll be like, oh, we can't do that. You know, like, you know, think about saving bonds. You know, so people have a, people kind of get trapped in a certain kind of living. And when you give I think the there's
0: option, a peer pressure for that as well, isn't there? Uh, yeah,
1: I look what you, I remember living in a when I was living in a squat, and I decided to go and live in France. And I remember my mate going like, "Look what you're giving up," you know. I was like, I, live, I was living in the corridor of a squat, you know. I, the window was broken, you know. I'm like, "What do you mean I'm giving? Like, I'm not giving anything off." But it's like, because people, it's the same thing about the working class thing is the biggest. You know, it's like a wall, but the biggest wall, biggest stones are on your side, and they're put there by everyone around you. Like, like, oh, not you know don't do that like don't don't go and go, go crazy don't go and move to canada or something like you might not work out and it's like well if it doesn't work out i'll just go back again like several times in my life i've had absolutely zero like no possessions like if my, this friend of mine who's an ex Royal Marine he's got like one of saddam Hussein's carpet on his wall you know from some palace somewhere and he's got all this stuff in his house i haven't got any stuff at all like my whole life i've not i've not managed to collect anything i've I don't own anything. I don't have a house. I don't have a pension. I have all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you're so lucky. You know, you're not, <laughs> tied, just...
0: you're not tied to anything.
1: Yeah. And uh, and it is that you need to balance these two things. You don't want to have, you don't want to transition from this normal life. Because really, that should be your normal life. If it becomes, you know, if like diffu- diffusing bombs, you know, becomes what you really want to be doing rather than like going to the park with your kids then there's something, there's something wrong. Or <laughs> <All> right, maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or just, or just go for it. Like go like, do a hundred percent, go for it. Like, but don't inflict that on other people. Don't come back and be like, oh, you know, like horrible to your wife or horrible to your partner. Like it just, just be a man about it and just say like, look, I'm just, because what happens is you say, I'm going to divorce you and I'm going to, I'm going to become a mercenary. You know, I'm going to, going to go on the ships and I'm gonna be like, you know, protect the ships going down past Somalia. Day they two they on that ship, you're like, oh god, I wish I was at home. I wish I was like <laughs> I wish I was taking the kids to school and oh I've made such a terrible mistake. But that,
0: sometimes you have to go away to feel like that to realise what you've got.
1: You yeah, do, but yeah. you need to get a tattoo or something. Because <laughs> you know, you don't you just you just maybe the older you get, you manage to just you know stick with it. But it's it's very hard. The more extreme your life is, the more mundane real life is oh, okay. uh, but um, like we we like near, near where we live is like the biggest lake in the british isles it's in ireland so technically the irish like you say in the british isles but it's in the biggest one of the biggest lakes in in europe and we uh we, we've got like a little boat like a you know like a, a lake boat like a wooden lake boat and we go out there and we go up to this we just like go along with the engine and all that kind of stuff it seems kind of boring but i really i really enjoy it Uh, there's something about it because it's not extreme trying to acknowledge that I'm having fun, but I'm not going to die doing it.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: You know, don't have to be, you know, you know, you spend your whole life like, Wrestling with wild animals. Like eventually, you just have to. You just have to get to the point where you say, "Actually, I'll just get some binoculars and I'll just, I'll just watch them from from afar because they're kind of cool." So.
0: Changing, changing things, isn't it? That make you happy. So, so what drew you to writing, and, and how did you overcome your dyslexia at the time?
1: Uh, well, look at you know, you go away and you do these like crazy, uh, these crazy tricks One way to make some money out of it is to is to write about it, and you might sell an article to a magazine. I had this, I did this climb with somebody. And it was a total disaster. It was an epic. Like the first attempt we got, you know, halfway up in the winter on this big thousand meter high face in the Alps. And I dropped my boot. I was on a bivouac. So I was trying to get my boot off, sitting on a tight, like this lid of a bin of a wheelie bin, sitting on this little bit of snow. And I dropped my boot and the boot went all the way to the bottom of the face. So the next day we had to like retreat all the way down. And and I found the boot at the bottom in the snow. So, so we went back and anyways, it was a total epic. And the guy I was with basically never climbed again. Like it, for him, that was it. That was that was like that was as far as I wanted to push it. Didn't want didn't want to do it again. But for me, it was like a really like this is terrible, and I think I'm going to die. But this is this is make this makes sense to me. This is this is something that really makes sense. I feel like I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this, but I'm better at this than anything else. So I came back and I decided I wanted to write the story of that of that of that climb, and I managed to get a computer off somebody. I went around someone's house had a computer. This is like 1994 or something. You know, not, not not people didn't have computers. You know, some people have computers, but not many people. I went to this person's house and was like typing this thing out. And then I think I like highlighted it and then deleted it all and didn't realize you'd just go backwards. So then I started again. And then uh like I think I deleted it twice in about it took me two years, and twice I completely lost the whole thing and I start again. And my wife at the time I was married before was a you know, she was like a teacher. In fact, I married my, my current wife, my future ex-wife is a teacher as well. You know, so I keep marrying these teachers because they teach me how to spell. So, yeah, so I'd write, I'd write this thing and I'd give it to my, my wife at the time. She'd be like, that's terrible. That's like, that's like sixth form rubbish. Like, that's terrible. So, so I'd write it again and give it to her like, oh, no, that's awful, awful, awful. And i just get writing it, writing it, writing it. Eventually, after two years, I'd written this thing. She's would like, that's, kind of, that's okay. That's, that's kind of okay. I think it was called Broken Promises, That this thing. And so I got so I took it to work. And I, this is the thing about this kind of weird inner confidence. You got this like working class thing of being crap, but deep down you got this inner ambition, confidence. I faxed it to climbing magazine, which was the biggest climbing magazine in the world, which is an American climbing magazine. So this is like faxing it to Rolling Stones, basically. So fax this thing, fax it through and then I go go home next morning, come into work, and this is fax there from Climbing Magazine. We love this. We're going to run with it, blah, blah, blah. Now, that that facts is probably more important to me, to me than the climb itself. Writing the story of the climb was a hell, hell of a lot harder than the climb itself. Like the was, climb, this,
0: was this Psycho Vertical? The book became Psycho Vertical?
1: Well, it, that that that, book, that story ended up being in Psycho Vertical of the, of the climb. But again, but then on top of that, you know, I ended up writing. So I wrote for a lot. I started writing articles for Climbing Magazine and, uk magazines then i got like a, I got like a gig being like the gear editor of a magazine and i was writing. but it's interesting when i look i often find an old email from me you know from me like that period and it is totally illegible like my how my editor managed to translate what i was writing into english i have no, I have no idea it must have you know i don't know what a, a verb is i don't know what a noun is i don't know what a present imperative is or like my kids Will be like, Dad, how do you spell once? I just don't know anything about grammar or anything like that, um but I do understand my limitations like I understand you know then rather than than or when or we all these kind all these kind of things I've kind of learned how to spot certain mistakes in my in my kind of writing, and anyways, eventually someone from Random House could you come one day if you're ever in London come and visit us, we'd like you to talk about writing a book for us and I have this thing about. If the more you, the more you grasp, the more, you know, the richer you want to be, the poorer you'll become in a way. It's like the analogy is like holding like sand in your hand. You know, if you squeeze it too tight, you lose it. So I was like, okay. And I, I didn't see this. I didn't go to London for like two years. And then uh, I got on this writing program in Canada. And the guy who invited me from Random House was the editor on this writing program. It's like, that's it. It's, that's what it's meant to be. I'm going to go to this writing program, you know, with all these writers. And I'm going to get this book deal. And then I realised I'd double booked it, and I was going to have to do a talk for some charity in London for the uh, for Sherpas or something. It's fate; like I'm not meant to go. So, so I said I can't do this writing program. We're going to have to do this lecture instead. And then the following year, I got on the writing program, go there, meet the editor. He's like, "Let's do this book," and end up writing this book. But I'd never written a book before, and you really to write your to write your first book, you need to write a book first because you you just don't know how to write a book. And what I did, I just kind of just banged the whole thing out and then sent it to him. And I imagined you'd have this like months of like sitting down saying the second, the second word here in the first line, you know, should that be blah, blah, blah. And instead he just got this email back going like, that's great. It's gone to, it's gone to the printers. And I was like, wow, it's like, you know, so. Um, it's got to
0: be unusual though.
1: I, th- I think these days it's not, I don't think. I think these days it's like, it's just like, like a, like a, like a sausage factory. <laughs> they just like bang them out. I think. And because um, I, I always thought like I could have written a much better book if I realised that was the process. But anyway, the book came out, it won like, qu- won like quite a few awards. It's translated into German and Polish and Korean. And it's was one of these books where I'll be in a queue somewhere, you know, and someone will be like, oh, did you write, are you that guy who wrote that book, psychovetic, or something? Or It's kind of uh, cool. But at the same time, you know, you have, when I read it back, I was trying to do the audio book. And I start reading it. I'm like, oh God, there's like repetition in that in that in that line. Or all I can see is all the negative, all the negatives. I can't. But at the same time, I'm, you know, that probably is means more to me as a human being than all the climbs in it. Yeah. Because it required, um, you know, because now it's very uh, it's very unpopular for me to to say this. But when I was when my I've got three kids, one of each. When my son was still. um maybe he was like 12 or 13 or maybe younger the he had this diagnosis that he had adhd and you know he called into this like child psychiatrist type person and uh, all, all these like kind of people who i find intimidating because they're all qualified i went in there with my wife at the time and uh my ex-wife at the time and we're sitting there and they say oh you and you go and play with the lego over here and i'm gonna we're gonna talk to your mom and dad and they started saying. Or uh, Ewan has like ADHD and uh, blah blah blah. How, why? What's wrong with him? Like, t- what? What's the signs of ADHD? He Said, well, he like uh, he cl- one of the things he climbs inappropriately, and I, and I was like, that's my whole. That's what I do for a living. And then they're like, and he and he talks inappropriately. I'm like that's what, again, that's what I do for a living. And they started telling me why he had ADHD, and instead of um, listening to what they were saying, I just started looking at the Lego he was playing with. And I was imagining like making something with the Lego. I was not interested in what they were talking about. I was imagining I was like, You're doing it wrong. Like you wanna put that bit over there and blah, blah, blah. And then my then my wife was like, It's his fault. It's, it's got it off his dad. His dad's his dad's got ADHD as well. He did not know it. No. But um within that one meeting, they wanted to give him like Ritalin. And and I was just like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. So, but it made me realize that this, um, that you really have to come to terms with who you are. But I think like coming to terms with these things, like now, you know, now I'm on the, the second time round dealing with, with parents who have got kids, you know, and parents, and this is going off the topic of, 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 of this thing, but you know, saying like, oh, my son's got this diagnosis of autism. And I'm just like, it's not autistic. Like just, and don't keep telling him he's autistic and don't talk, Talk to other people about him being an autistic and don't because he will become autistic. He'll be that kid who's autistic. The same as I was this kid who was dyslexic. My mum always said, You're not dyslexic, you're just lazy. And you don't con- <laughs> and you don't concentrate. And I'm like, That's because I had ADHD. <laughs> but really I am I am lazy and I don't I don't concentrate. Like if I really concentrated? Like I must be able to you know, I can write books. I basically make a living writing books. That's how I make a living. And uh, and I write books which people like and I might we get some spelling mistakes. But there's lots of people who, who are not dyslexic, who can't write books. So it's not a we, – we we really live in an age where we really um, fetishise uh, disability in a way. Like I had I, – for, for for a long time I had a girlfriend who was paraplegic from a climbing accident. You know, there's someone who is paraplegic and she is not disabled. Like she is the most super-abled person you would ever meet. You know, we skied across Greenland together and climbed El cap together. Did all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff together – and she had never had one moment of saying, oh, I can't do that because I'm paraplegic. I'm in a wheelchair or whatever. And when you meet people who are genuinely disabled, they never, they never pull that. Well, you'll meet someone else who'd be like, I can't do that because I'm dyspraxic or something. But we really elevate that, that kind of element of things. I don't know why. Well, we-
0: we, we've got a, a podcast in the future with a guy called Rob Long, who was blinded in Afghanistan. He used to be in the 4 and 3 battery. And um, he is the Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion at his weight and he's beaten able-bodied fighters. And when you talk to him, that's one of the things he says. He's, not, he's never going to let his disability label him and, and prevent him from doing what he needs to do.
1: Yeah, I think maybe it's like people who choose the hardest thing. Like I always have this thing with my kids, like never take the shortcut. If, there's, if it looks like an easier and a hard way, take the hardware because you'll learn something in the process. Even if it was like, I should have gone the other way. Like a friend of mine, um, Steve Baird, who was blind, uh, I climbed El Cap with him, and I always joke that not only is he blind, he's ginger, and people will, <laughs> like, people will laugh, and then they would like, like, they'll stop themselves. And the same with like when I skied across Greenland, I'm said like, oh, she's, you know, she skied across Greenland, but you know, she's in a wheelchair. It was easy for her; she was sitting down. And people will, you'll, you know, you be on the radio, and someone will laugh, and they'll stop themselves, like oh, I'm not supposed to laugh at that person because they're disabled. But that is not treating people the same, you know. You want you want people to take the Mickey out of you and not to be like going around you, really. So yeah, so yeah, being being blind in jujitsu, maybe it's better. you can't see the size of you know Jocko Willink comes out. You can't see this uh, huge, huge mountain of a man or something.
0: Yeah, no, I wouldn't mess with them either. So Kev, yeah. about if Andy, we're going to have to move on now. So we're getting near <laughs> the end of the pod. So Kev,
2: over to you. We'll finish off with Desir Dits, Des- Dits, which is the guest choice of
1: book. Film and luxury item. So, Andy, what have you chosen for your book? Uh, well, I thought I'd better stick with the with a the theme, military theme, not the climbing theme. I don't really read many climbing books. Um, I, when I was on the Troll Wall with these Norwegian guys, one of them, so one of them had a lot of dealings with the army, Norwegian army, and he recommended these two books. So one was about face by Colonel Hackworth. The other one was on killing uh, by Grossman. Out of the two books uh, about face, like this is like this book's become quite well-known now because of, uh, I think Jocko Willink always talks about it. But what I love about, about Face, uh, I don't know if any of your other you know contributors have mentioned about Face, but you know this guy who's in the very end of the Second World War, then goes to Korea, then Vietnam. I think he was the most highly decorated American soldier. And what's great about the book is that he uh, he really writes in a way of how someone grows as a, as a soldier and as a person. And mm-hmm. at the beginning, he's really gung-ho, and he's doing all this crazy... Crazy, dangerous stuff, and getting shot. And uh, I think he this is like just like you know a really interesting character. And then he goes to Vietnam, and now he's elevated up the chain of command, and he's like running this unit. And you can see um, the disconnect between what's going on on the ground and what's going on in the Pentagon or in the White House. And he really describes in a really a really interesting way exactly what's happened in Afghanistan, or is happening in like in almost anything you want to care to talk about. This this corporate kind of structure. So it goes from being a war book, you know, Daring Do, to, um, there's a great bit where, you know, he's in this special forces unit in Korea and they basically all get wiped out because they just get used as like infantry, which is exactly what's happened in Australia and with other, you know, in the modern day. So there's so many lessons in this book. I, I just found it like a book where I'm always like, when I see something on the news, I'm like, that exact, that's exactly what Hackworth was, was saying in this book. You'll see it in like the, the NHS or the, Catholic Church, or you know, you'll just see it all around you. Really, this problem with like these kind of corporate structures, where no one wants any bad news and no one t- wants to take responsibility for it. But on-
0: I, I I remember um I read that book years ago, and I remember he, he joined as a boy soldier, didn't he? And he ended up as a colonel, I think. Andy, is that
1: correct? Yeah, well he went he went to Iwo Jima, but on, on a, like a he was on like a merchant marine ship, and he was actually underage. So yeah, yeah, he went there. he never went onto the beach. He was just in the merchant marine. And then he ended up getting into the army and then went to, I think it was in Italy at the end of the Second World War, but probably when the war had finished. But yeah, he ended up being, like they said, if his life had turned out differently, he would have, you know, he would have gone right to the top. but You know, he would have gone quite high in the military.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but he was, uh, he's, he's dead now, but he's just, it's one of those military books where it works on those different levels. And you, you know there was that book recently. It was by the. It was by an SAS guy who died not long after writing it. He died in Thailand or somewhere. It was a. I can't remember what it's called now, but it was um, very stream of consciousness. You, you know, some some people they just channel all these stories, and they're often all soldiers. They often can be quite bitter, can't they? Because they feel like they were just used and abused and everything else. Yeah. And the, the Hackworth book is good because it doesn't. It doesn't seem bitter. It's just more. This is the reality of these. Um, of the military and isn't you know people might say it's an anti-war book but it's de- it's not an anti it's not an anti-military book you know it's it's an anti got a corporate structure <laughs> kind of book really
0: that's interesting i remember when i read that he said things like um you know that the american army went into korea with a with a bad army and came out with a good one. Then it went to Vietnam with a good army and came out with a bad one. <laughs> and it was until it was until '91 really that they, they got their uh, sort of their act together again. And he spoke out against the Vietnam War, didn't he? As well, yeah, yeah.
1: It? Like he had like a hand grenade like put under his seat of his jeep and all sorts of stuff. And uh, yeah, those those kind of people you really need them, but they're just trouble. Like, you know, some people, uh, you know, That's that's missing pro- pro- in the modern. You know, in our society at the moment, is people who are trouble. Your Peter Hitchens and all these all these kind of people who were like, oh god, why that guy just shut up? he's just it's just a misery. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, they give a temperature gauge of what's really what's really felt, don't they? For and sometimes people at the top end don't want that um, ground truth.
1: I think that uh, you know when you write, I, 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 you know, in the past I was a controversial person because of my views on all sorts of things, and people would just say like, oh, you're just like a Daily Mail, you sound like a Daily Mail reader. And it's funny because my mum always reads the Daily Mail and I don't, you know, I was like a Guardian reader. I was, I always wanted Labour, read the Guardian, all that kind of stuff. So for me, you know, at the time you'd be like, how dare you say that? But, but when I used to go back to my mum's house in the I'd read, I'd like open the Daily Mail. And then one day I was like, you know what? The Daily Mail is actually saying what's actually going on. You know, this is actually the, the, tr- the, the truth in a lot of people's lives of, you know, kids who are pain on the housing estate and blah, 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 blah. But you just don't want those kind of people, you know, because it's just depressing.
0: So if you're going to be watching something, Andy, what's your film choice?
1: It's technically, well, it's probably out of, it's not quite uh, like a lot of the other films people people like, but I'd, I'd say Tinker Tail, of soldier spy, because technically it's about war, Cold War. And I must have watched this film, I must have watched this film like hundred hundreds of times. And it's one of these films I would just put it on if I, if I was working. If I was doing something, I didn't have to like concentrate, like illustrating, like I, I illustrate, like the books I write. If I was illustrating, I just put this film on and I've just watched it so many times. And it's just a really, the, the film, like the, the TV series was great, but the film is, it just got so, it's such a great study of, of uh betrayal and uh, uh the subtleness of like interactions between people. And every time I watch it, I'll just see something that I, that, that I never really saw before, and I'll just get something. And I, 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 love, I love all the kind of the classics. One of know. Kev's
0: favorites, that,
1: isn't it, Kev? It is. But which would you choose, the series or the film? Yeah, you can't really beat like all the all the yeah. you know that that period of TV. Like, that 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 Alex really, Guinness, you know, you can't beat him. But they made so many great TV series. You mm-hmm. look at them now, and you're like, oh, that's you know terrible. Like it's badly filmed or whatever. But they really put, like they were saying about you know the James Bond films. The old James Bond films had so much dialogue in them. You know, very little action, very little no, C- no CGI. CGI, So you'd have you know the classic uh, is it blow? You know you have felt Was it felt It was in the with a cat. No Blofeld. And you'd have you know uh, Goldfinger, and you know they're playing they're playing golf. You know, but they're just talking. Yeah, you know, developing characters and all that kind of stuff. And you know like Robert Shaw and all. That, you know, the, the TV was like that. It was much more. Cerebral. A lot of it was even a lot of the old uh, scary TV. It was like it's mm. terrifying. Now you know nothing. Nothing's as good. So yeah, I think that the TV series is is brilliant because it's it's kind of slow, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Well, the film's slow in comparison to modern films. But like you say, it wasn't about action. It was about you got to think the story through.
1: Yeah, and there's so there's so many things which are like like when you when you're writing, that's you know the whole that like, you know show don't tell. There's so many things that you write that when you finish and you hand it over, people will read things into it that have nothing to do with you. You know, they'll read in their own lives because you've left so much blank space in what you're writing. And, and some things will be really moving or make people cry. And you're like, that, that, that's nothing to do with me. Like that's, you know, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: you know, so I think uh, that's probably why I like it, because there's a lot. There's a lot in it that even the way, you know, like Alex, uh, what's not Alex Guinness? What's his name? Um, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, the way he's got his gun in a little plastic bag and he takes it out, you know, that's that's like genius, isn't it? Like, you know, they're so distasteful. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's a real, it's a real, um, you know, you know, like, you know, Dixon or Doc Green and those things. The idea of someone having a gun, a policeman having a gun, you know, or someone shooting—it's never
0: happened in in Britain, would it?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, I just love that. It's so timeless. So I think those kind of films are so timeless. So, Yeah, slow, slow food for the for the mind <laughs> <laughs> and luxury item. Well, I was, I was sat downstairs, and my, my I was saying, I was saying, what about this? And I was like oh, you can't have that on a desert island. You want to charge it? And i was like, it's not literally on a desert <laughs> island. Like, I was like, what, what about And then she you know, like, what would you have? It's like, you know, I was like, if I got, because people say like coffee, like, oh, I have to have my coffee. And she's like, oh, you you just run out of coffee. You couldn't have that. Like, what do you, what do you want to have? Like, uh, you know, like <laughs> a canoe or something. So um, I'd probably say a Kindle. And I've taken my Kindle, um, like, all over the world. And in the most horrendous temperatures and uh, somehow it has survived like a minus you know once it gets to below certain temperature goes to the next page nothing happens it just kind of goes super super slowly and then the next page kind of appears but for me it was it's always been a really good way of like decompressing you know you're in your sleeping bag you're in a snow hole or you're on a on a portal edge on a big wall when you're minus 50 reading June. Is a is a real good tonic. What's that the what's the book about you know, the other guy who was in not in Borneo, who in the Second World War, the great book about survival in the jungle?
0: Oh, the oh. jungle was neutral, Spencer yeah, Chapman. Yeah,
1: yeah, Spencer Chapman. Like I read that book in Alaska, like in, in the snow <laughs> hole. You know, and he just it puts you know, it was something like Primo Levi, like in a concentration camp but like hmm. it puts what you're doing into perspective you know like you are on your holidays basically that means, <laughs> you know any any kind of you know desert you know stuff in the desert or you know it's it's like it's like great stuff really no gps in those days and one of the, one, one book is amazing it's not a climbing book or a military book but i think it's called alone at sea which is about the hans Lindemann who kayaked across the atlantic in 1956 and he went from the Canaries. All the way to the Caribbean in a klepper kayak, a double. It was double the klepper kayak, and he had all he had was beer and milk, and it took him <laughs> yeah. like seventy six days, uh, all by himself. No, no one knew where he was, no GPS, no radio, whatever. And you know, he but he he'd survived the Western Front and the Eastern Front in Second World War. As a German, you know, as a military doctor, you know I often think about that. You know him and his kayak. You know, no matter how big things, bad things get, you're not in the middle of the Atlantic all by yourself. So.
0: Yeah, no, I'll have to look that one up. I've never heard that one before. So, yeah. so Keith, what's your choice?
2: Well, I was going to ask you what your choice is. Picking up the brass, and it's written by a a
0: pseudonym of Eddie Nugent. And it's actually written by two guys that are in the Royal Signals. And it
2: has
0: nothing to to do with war. It's about (laughs) two Manchester lads who join up in 1985. And it's so funny. MD joined up because they do nothing. (laughs) That was pretty much the army of the 80s. They join up, they go through basic training. They have a shot at P Company and fail that. And then they're posted to um, Germany in the 1980s. (laughs) And it's just a humour in it. It's absolutely spot on and it captures the time. So did you read it as well, mate? Did you Ken? Yeah,
2: I read it. I read it years ago. But for all those that served in Germany in the 80s that did nothing, I apologise <laughs> because you, I know you were all busy um, and all the rest of it during the Cold War, the height so- of the Cold War. So that's whole
0: whole uh, people of Hull are going to hunt us down because the van is and now we're going to i have alienated all the DOR warriors. Yeah,
2: all, all those that spent all their days active edge polishing the kit, <laughs> getting it ready, going on his lung exercises, facing the the Warsaw path, ironing. Pairing, preparing for yeah, the Third hey. World War. Colin just said, basically, you like, did nothing. Well, you've won. Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think if, if you do attrition, Soviet, because it was proven, wasn't it? When we talked about this, about the first Gulf War, was basically Soviet tactics, Soviet equipment against Western equipment. You obliterated it because because the equipment wasn't up to, and the tactics just couldn't mean and they couldn't maintain half the. Now, as well, good now. Yeah. And because they're using, um, again, uh, and I won't say it's because it was a conscript but they were using uh, multinational Eastern Bloc countries, all of them destabilised in any way. Um, not all of them were as pro-communism as you know, the, the, the centre. There, there was going to be coups, there was going to be soldiers not wanting to fight. But you know I, I what, think, mate, none
0: of that is in this book. Well, no, <laughs> but again, you just
2: said they've just sat around
0: okay well, i think we should go off the subject then go to your book then
2: what is your no, book my, my choice this week is a little bit different as well it's a book that people will know serpico uh about frank serpico who was a police officer from the late 50s 1959 to 1972 and he was involved in he was a bit of a whistleblower at the time because he, he didn't agree with the corruption in new york police in, in, the, in the 60s and 70s as a There was a massive amount of corruption. And a lot of people may remember the film in 1973, 1974 with Al Pacino playing the part as Frank Serpico. So it's a a true story. And it talks about the challenges, his chain of command, reporting problems, reporting corruption, not wanting to be involved in corruption and how the majority of the force turned a blind eye to police corruption in that era and in the end, it was investigated, but it was never proven. They believed that he was set up, not just necessarily set up, but when they were doing a drugs arrest, he got shot in the face. But the officers that were with him didn't assist him, and they actually didn't call for an ambulance. say so An officer, officer shot one of the residents in the block, uh, called an ambulance for him. And then he was involved later, in, I think in 1972, the Nap Commission, which was a big commission to look into the corruption inside the uh NYPD uh, and his evidence was crucial for that to, to give a flavour although afterwards he retired in 1972 as well obviously uh, he received the gold shield he received the medal of honour from the police he retired uh, left the force he could no longer serve in the force at all and although a lot of um, non clock police officers uh, ostracised him because they, they, they ostracised him more out of the fact that they didn't stand with him turned the blind eye But I think it's a fantastic story about policing in the 70s in New York. And there are other books with other police officers that very much went through the same sort of thing.
1: But well worth a watch.
2: Well, I think he was a truck maker, but he was also a police officer and he wanted to be a police officer and he wanted to do the best thing for the community. And what he saw was good police officers were just doing their job, but the corrupt police officers were not policing. Yeah. They were as bad as the criminals. And I think there's, there's a couple of series that came out um, about 75 districts and something else where the police were running it like a mafia. Um, so there was whole districts or boroughs uh, who had a massive amount of corruption. And so they were the biggest gang in New York. Uh, and it took many years from to, to drive that sort of um, practice out.
0: Well, know. I'm going to offend people now as well because my sister's friend walked in New York for a bit. She's working in a, a donut shop. I know this is stereotyping <laughs> and And the, the, this cop came in for the donuts and uh, she gave him six donuts and off he went. And about 10 minutes later, he comes back and said that the that the box was short. And she looked inside, now oh, were six donuts in there. And then the girl she's working with came to one side and took it off her. Yeah. And uh, what they were doing was th- there should have been some cash in there for the cops.
2: Yeah. Oh, God.
0: Uh, yes, that, so...
2: was the, that was in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it, it the, the, the NAP Commission set up the process to start doing it, but if you think about a police officer 20-odd years, there were still interesting police officers serving throughout, plus it was got up the chain of command as well. It wasn't just the low-level police, it was uh, through the chain of command as well, so they really struggled to to start, and that was the start of it, and that was in 1972, and obviously, you know, there's, there's always going to be corruption in any organisation, but New York police had a particularly bad reputation during the 70s. Well, get the it.
1: politics instead.
2: <laughs> well, he, well he, he's, he's, he's done speeches, he did run for um, election in one of the boroughs as well, but he didn't get through and he supported other people. And it took a long time for, I think, for him to become um, accepted back into the law enforcement fraternity, they realised afterwards. And I think the film really helped his story. Al Pacino was quite popular in 72, 73. Uh, the story came across really well, and it, it still stands today. Thank you, Andy, for coming on this podcast, and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Keep them coming. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of our show notes. And as you know, if you want to send me a letter, put a stamp on it, send me that way, because obviously I don't do any social networking. Don't forget Andy's touring the UK in October and November. Details available on his website, wwwandy uh, com. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you download us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review, as is the best way of bringing to our attention. The series. Thanks once again to Nick Beauf for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series, and offering technical support through his company ISTAR. We'll see you next time on the Unconventional Soldier.